This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is not going on? What the hell is going on is there has been an unprecedented terrorist attack, invasion of the state of Israel. 900 people have died in Israel, including 11 American citizens at the hands of Hamas, but not really at the hands of Hamas alone, at the hands of Hamas and their terrorist regime backers, the Iranian regime. More than 260 kids were massacred in a coordinated attack. I can't believe I'm saying these words, a coordinated attack on a music festival. The Hamas terrorists came in, they stole Israeli military and police uniforms, set up roadblocks on on the road outside this music festival, and then sent in terrorists with paragliders to attack the music festival, forcing the kids to flee towards the what they thought was safety in the hands of Israeli police and military, only to find out that those were terrorists too, and they started shooting them and massacring them. It, who conducts a coordinated attack on a music festival? You just sent me a tweet that I almost, I, I, my jaw dropped. Of that 900 people, 40 babies were murdered. 40 babies. These are people who went into homes, killed grandmothers, killed babies, raped women. There was a video I saw that everyone's seen on Twitter of a little Israeli boy who was captured by Hamas and is being bullied by kids his age, Palestinian kids his age. So they're they're teaching their children to bully children their own age because they're Jews. I'm at a loss for words, Danny. But I want to say one thing. We we should not treat this as a Palestinian-Israeli conflict. This is directed by the Iranian regime. I, we don't know yet. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that this was planned and green-lighted by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. And Iran is responsible for this war. Or I don't believe for a second that they didn't coordinate it. But even if we can't prove that they did, they are responsible for this. And we need to hold the Iranian regime responsible for what happened in Israel this weekend. Um, because yes, Israel has to go out and wipe out Hamas. But even if they succeed in that operation, the Iranian regime is still standing and they're the ones behind this. Uh, you laid out the, the litany pretty well, Mark. I should add that the story you just referenced, which came out uh, on Tuesday, is that babies were found uh, at a, a kibbutz, Kfar Aza, it's called, in the south. And they found babies beheaded. I don't know what child of a mother is brought up to think that 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 is how a human being behaved. I was doing MSNBC and uh, there was a woman on whose daughter has been kidnapped and is being held hostage. Beautiful, beautiful Israeli girl um, from from that music festival. And and she said something. She said, if if this is what human beings are. I'm ashamed to call myself a human being, which I thought was uh, very poignant. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Look, this is about a culture of impunity for Iran. In our interview with our guest, Elliot Abrams, I go through the litany of what Iran gets away with. And you know what? It is no surprise. If you tolerate it, they do more. If you continue to tolerate it, they do even more. The Israelis are going to do what the Israelis have to do. And, you know, I think we are all collectively praying that they are able to rescue American hostages and the Israeli hostages. They think there are probably up to 150 of them there. Hamas has threatened to kill each one live on air for every bomb strike on a, on a quote unquote civilian house uh, in Gaza, as if there were such a thing uh, in Gaza, the way that Hamas operates. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I I have written this. I have said it innumerable times. As long as Iran believes that it can do 
without consequence to its own leadership and security, this will continue. It'll be Hamas, it'll be Hezbollah, it'll be the Houthis, it'll be the popular mobilization forces, it'll be the Syrians, it'll be the Lebanese, it'll be someone acting for Iran and it's time that it ended. What consequences would you impose on Iran for this? Because clearly that's where this has to lead. The Iranians can't get away with this. So I know you're no fan of Donald Trump, Danny, and and we share our concerns about him. But I will tell you this, that he drew a red line for our country, which was that if Iran touches the hair of a single American citizen, they will pay the price. We will hold them accountable, not their proxies. We will not just limit our retaliation against their proxies. And it worked for a little while. They were dancing around the red line that he drew. They took down a drone, but they didn't take down an armed uh, U.S. plane. They carried out a bunch of terrorist acts. And then they killed an American contractor through their proxies in Iraq. And they set fire to the U.S. embassy. And Trump took out Qasem Soleimani. And then he tweeted, and this is a quote, If Iran strikes any Americans or American assets, we have targeted 52 Iranian sites representing the 52 American hostages taken by Iran many years ago, some very high level and important to Iran and Iranian culture, and those targets and Iran itself, all caps, will be hit very fast and very hard, unquote. He was absolutely clear, and the Iranians took it seriously because they didn't retaliate. They they stood down. And the result of that, by the way, was not just containing Iran for a period and deterring Iran for a period for Abraham Accords, peace, uh, growing peace in the Middle East. We need to get so, back to that kind of deterrence. So here's my problem with that, Mark. Um, I agree with you. That was great. But, you know, these, this is my area and these are my people. And I've been doing this for it's creeping up on 40 years now. Here's the problem. Even if one president is good. You cannot be sure about the next one. They get, I hate to use this word, they get bored with their foreign policy. We imposed sanctions on Iraq because of its very advanced nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons program in 1991 after they invaded Kuwait. By the end of the 20th century, nine years later, sanctions were falling apart. Saddam hadn't complied. He hadn't given us anything. We were just kind of bored with them. The the consensus of the international community wasn't there. Or let me give you an even better example. Two days ago, the European Union announced it was cutting, suspending all aid to the Palestinians. Literally a day later, back on, you know, we cannot... You cannot count on either a U.S. president or the international community to sustain the necessary boot on the throat of the Iranians that will stop them from doing this. And I will add, there is nothing, even during the time of of Donald Trump, that did not stop them from rearming Hezbollah, from killing half a million, half a million people in Syria from from sustaining Hezbollah and Hamas attacks. So, yes, I agree with you. I would like a first step for us to go back to the Trump policy, go back to the maximum pressure campaign, cut Iran off from every penny the Biden administration has given them, impose every single sanction and lots and lots more. Iranians move freely about the world. Let's end that. Iranian jets move freely. Let's end that. Iran moves money around with the support of Russia and China. The Trump administration did a great job of making clear to the Russians and the Chinese what the consequences of that would be. Let's end that. But then let's talk seriously about the true evil at the heart of all of these problems, which is the regime itself. Well, we can't get to that until we do the other things first. Even that we're not seeing it seemed to be capable of. But I mean, seriously, Danny, I want to know what you think. What What is the consequence we should impose on Iran for what has happened? Well, I think we should reverse every single concession that the Biden administration has made. So in January of 2020, one, when uh, Donald Trump was uh, behaving like a swine uh, in our nation's capital, the Iranians were exporting very, very little oil, certainly well under a million barrels per day, probably under half a million barrels per day. In the first month that Joe Biden was president, they began re-exporting with wild abandon. 
the United States has not imposed serious sanctions on Iran in more than a year. Some little ones and some repetition of already existing sanctions. The United States is involved in a covert dialogue with the Iranian regime that it is lying to Congress about. Okay. What are they getting in exchange? And we know this not just from inside the administration, but from the Iranians themselves. What, what are they getting? The Iranians have agreed that they will slow down their stockpiling of highly enriched uranium in contravention, I should add, of both the JCPOA and the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The Iranians also, uh, have, have promised, uh, Biden to keep oil prices low by not stirring things up. What is Joe Biden's interest? Getting reelect in 2024. That's their leverage over him. All of those things should end. All of the dialogue should end. All of the movement should end. The Iranians should be living in a place that feels like Gaza to them. That's what we can do. And by the way, we know we can do it because we have the tools. Of course, all of that, Mark, is predicated on us having a goddamn serious foreign policy, as opposed to the joke we have where Congress is more, you know, interested in tweeting than it is in upping our defense. And the White House is more interested in talking about the dog than it is in talking about victory in Ukraine. Sorry, I'm ranting. No, that's all right. (laughs) These moments like these are made for ranting. So, the other thing they could do, by the way, if, if congressional Republicans, Senate Republicans want to do something, block Jack Lou as U.S. ambassador to Israel. The Biden administration is, is saying we've got to expedite Jack Lou as ambassador. We can't. We don't have an ambassador in Israel. Let's get him through. This is a guy who the Senate uh, Permanent Select Committee on, on Investigations uncovered that he lied to. First, he he helped Iran get access to U.S. banks and circumvent U.S. sanctions and then lied to Congress about it. Okay, uh, this guy has no business being a U.S. ambassador to Israel. And so let's let's not send Israel at the moment that it's under attack, a guy who aided and abetted the Iranians in circumventing sanctions and then lied to the U.S. Congress about it. So there's something the Senate Republicans could do right away. But I linked to that. I linked to that report, folks, in a post I did for AEI on Tuesday morning. So if you want we'll to read it, put it in our Substack as well. If you want to read it, this was this is a report that from from a committee that it was uncovered by Senator Rob Portman. So this is not some some crazy conspiracy theory. This is documented. This is fact. Uh, this guy should not be anywhere near an embassy in the Middle East. Um, but again, I want to come back to the consequences on Iran. I mean, you know, the red line was: you kill an American, we're going to whack you. Um, do we need to whack Iran? You know what I think, Mark. I think that uh, that a nice place to start would be to get rid of Qasem Soleimani's successor, uh, Ismail Khani. That's a great place to start. He has been in Lebanon helping, training, strategizing with Hamas, with Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and with Hezbollah repeatedly this year. My view is that Iranian leaders, like Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, who has not been seen in public since 2006, since their war with Israel, I'd like all of the Iranian leadership to be afraid to step out of their homes, much as the Israelis took out uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, who was the head of their nuclear program. I would like to see all of them fear for their lives. Then we really do need to talk seriously about whether the continued existence of the regime in Tehran is tolerable. I'm not saying, you know, regime change. I'm not saying war. I'm saying that this is a conversation that needs to happen because everything else is band-aids on the problem. If you let them live, they will, Hamas will come back. If you let them live, Hezbollah will continue. If you let them live, we will not be able to live in peace and security, and our allies in the Middle East will not be able to live in peace and security. Iran is the heart of darkness in the Middle East. And lest the uh, America first Charles Lindbergh caucus accuse you of wanting to start another war and send hundreds of thousands of American troops to go to war uh, with Iran, let's recall that the Soviet Union fell the communist regimes of all of Eastern Europe fell without a shot being fired because we had a coordinated policy that that we win and they lose, as Ronald Reagan famously said. And it doesn't require U.S. military action to help bring down a regime. There are lots of people who are willing to bring down their own tyrannical regimes and they just need our help. 
Um, and, and we have and we have ignored them, Mark. We have ignored them. Two thousand nine, they tried to do it. Then Marsamini. Two thousand nineteen. Then in two thousand twenty-two, and we have ignored it and subsidized the Iranians in the face of the struggle of the Iranian people. You are so right. It may take a long time uh, for the Iranian regime to fall, but there is a fundamental policy choice we have to make. Is our goal of our policy? to try and bring the Iranian regime into the community of civilized nations and have them behave in a responsible way, which is what the Obama administration and Biden administration seems to be trying to do by enticing them with aid and enticing them with sanctions relief in exchange for some kind of fanciful agreement that they will behave differently and be good neighbors finally? Or is it the policy of the United States to seek the end of the Iranian regime without military action over a period of time by isolating them, by squeezing them, uh, by forcing them to make a choice to either change their behavior or fall under the pressure of their own people and the pressure of Western isolation. And our policy should be isolation. Our policy should be squeezing them. Not a dime of ransom money, not a dime of sanctions relief, not a dime of economic support, cutting off every asset and every way that they can fund their terror and supporting the Iranian people when they rise up against their own government. That's what we did in Eastern Europe. That's why the revolution of 1989 happened. And we need a similar thing to happen in in Iran or else there's never going to be peace. How do we do it? Our guest. Maybe our guest. Yeah, well, that is that is the question we're going to put to him. So Elliot Abrams, he's been with us before, and now he's with us again. He's a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington. He served as a deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor in the George W. Bush administration, and does special representative for Iran and Venezuela and the administration of Donald Trump. He is one of my favorite people and someone who I trust to be thoughtful, to be compassionate, and I'm so glad he was able to be with us. Here's our interview. Elliot, welcome back to the podcast. Very happy to do it again. We're glad to have you. Hamas has carried out a massive terrorist attack in Israel that everyone's debating whether it was directly coordinated with Iran, but we know that without Iran's support, regardless of direct coordination, they couldn't have carried this out. Talk to us about what the U.S. response should be. First of all, um, I agree with that. It is inconceivable to me that they could have done an attack like this without lots of help from Iran. Whether there were IRGC people actually participating remains to be seen. It strikes me as perfectly plausible. But when you see things like Hamas jamming signals from the small Israeli military base there on the border so that it couldn't call for help, this is Iran. And that raises the question that you asked, which is, what do we do? You know, we're in a situation where Iran's been killing Americans for about five decades uh, with impunity. They've just killed 11 more Americans. So I think first, uh, we reverse the current policy of rapprochement with Iran. Remember, um, Jimmy Carter woke up after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and he changed his policy toward the Soviet Union. Uh, this administration should wake up and realize that its policy toward Iran, you know, which was restoring the JCPOA or replacing it with a new nuclear deal, uh, letting them <clears throat> export much more oil to China so that their reserves, financial reserves, have grown and grown. This policy should be dumped, jettisoned, reversed. And a policy, if I can borrow a term from the Trump administration, of maximum pressure, should be imposed to try to squeeze Iran as much as we can diplomatically and economically. Secondly, to help the people of Iran who loathe this regime. And thirdly, the, the hotter question, since they've just killed 11 Americans and the number may rise, is there a military option here? Should the United States be punishing Iran for the killing of these Americans? I know that there are some members of Congress who take that view, and I think you will be hearing it. I think this administration won't consider it, <clears throat> but Part of the reversal of our policy, I think, should be an end to the impunity with which Iran, directly and indirectly through proxies, murders Americans. So the Trump administration 
established a red line, which was that if you kill a single American, either you or your proxy, Iran will pay a price for that. And it was notable that the Iranians, uh, when Secretary Pompeo laid that doctrine out, they danced around it for a while. They shot down a drone, but not a, ma a manned plane. They uh, attacked uh, European oil tankers, but not American. And then they made the mistake of, go of having their militia in Iraq kill an American contractor and some Americans there. And Trump responded by taking out Qasem Soleimani um, and told them the next strike will be on Iran if you retaliate. And they backed down. The doctrine was, if you kill an American or your proxies kill an American, we will not distinguish between you and Iran will pay the price. Shouldn't Biden be enforcing Trump's red line? He should. He should be abandoning a failed Iran policy. It's been in place for two and a half years now um, and has produced nothing good for the United States or our allies and partners. All it has done is to enrich and embolden Iran. One of the things that I've hated, and you both know me very well, I have very little sympathy for the Biden administration's Iran policy. What I've hated is is that in Washington, this conversation has become instantaneously politicized. Why hasn't Biden spoken out? This is all Biden's fault. Yada, yada, yada. You know, at the end of the day, I'm not a Joe Biden fan or a Joe Biden voter, but this is Iran's fault. And it seems to me that we actually have a challenge in front of us because we we want to fix the problem without fixing the problem. Okay. We have an Iranian nuclear weapons program that has grown steadily and at moments exponentially over the last three plus decades. Okay, We have an Iranian uh, terrorism problem that has grown exponentially at all times since the revolution. We have an Iran that has helped and facilitated the murder of half a million people in Syria. We have an Iran that fomented a war. I'm not, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm just giving people the litany to remember this. Okay? We have an Iran that facilitated a war in Yemen. We have an Iran that murdered hundreds, if not more, of American troops inside Iraq. We have an Iran that takes American hostages regularly. We have an Iran that's tried to kill an American on American soil mm. this year, okay, who tried to murder a Saudi ambassador in Georgetown. Okay? Yeah. We have an Iran that oppresses the crap out of its own people. We have an Iran that is now arming Russia. The problem is not Hamas or Hezbollah or what Bibi chose to do. And it's not even a weak attempts to contain and encircle the Iranian nuclear problem. The problem is the regime. Is it just too hard to say that, Elliot? It shouldn't be too hard. I mean, <laughs> if I can draw an analogy here, you know, this is really what the Israelis are realizing. You can't live with Hamas. You actually die with Hamas. And we've been doing, I mean, I wouldn't say it better than you did. It hasn't been U.S. policy to try to bring about regime change in Iran. Whether that's through uh, public diplomacy or helping the Iranian people or military move, it hasn't been U.S. policy. People immediately back away and say, regime change, oh my God. No, they say, oh my God, you dirty neocons. You're just trying to do it again to us. Neocon warmongers, yes. Um, but you're right, you can try, of course, to limit the harm that Iran does. We tried in Lebanon, we failed completely, and Iran and Hezbollah are in more control of Lebanon than, than they have ever been. Uh, we and the Israelis have tried it with respect to Hamas, and we saw the failure on Saturday. Um, we've tried it with the Iranian nuclear program, particularly under President Obama, uh, and they creep closer and closer, and sometimes they gallop closer and closer to having a usable nuclear weapon. People debate exactly how far away they are from having the warhead and having the weapon. It's all failed. And the answer is the end of this regime. And if I can just be positive for a minute, think about the Middle East if that regime falls and Hezbollah is much weaker in Lebanon and Lebanon has a chance to be the country that it was 30, 40 years ago. Think about Iraq. 
without Iranian-supported Shia militias. Think about Israel. Think about the Palestinians if Iran were not supporting all of the terrorist groups. The whole Middle East would change. And it won't change, I would argue, it won't change until that regime falls, which may be a year away and maybe decades away. But we're kidding ourselves if we think there's going to be, quote, peace in the Middle East while that regime is fomenting murder. I agree with that 100%, Elliot. But acknowledging that the regime is responsible for all the things, the litany of things that Danny put out, U.S. policy affects their behavior. And it's not going to make them be benign, but it can put them in a box. And the Obama administration sent pallets of cash to the Iranian regime, and the Iranian regime used that money and fueled terror and was on the march across the Middle East. The Trump administration uh, put on a maximum pressure campaign on it, and even the New York Times and the Washington Post reported that they didn't have money to pay their terrorist proxies, and that restricted their ability to carry out terrorism. And now we have the Biden administration giving them $6 billion ransom for Americans and easing sanctions on their oil, and they're flush with cash again, and look what happens. So yeah, I, I, ideally, we want the regime to, to go away, but barring that, U.S. policy does affect their behavior, does it sure. not? And accepting that the regime may be decades away from falling, let's say worst case scenario, how do we affect their behavior right now? Well, first, <clears throat> I remind you that when Trump left office, their reachable, usable financial reserves were $4 billion. And I looked actually at, I tried to discover this morning what they are now. They've risen by a factor of 10. They're about $40 billion. It may be higher than that. Um, that's real money. Add to that the roughly 10 billion, maybe 9 billion that they're getting out of the uh, hostage ransom. So that's first, squeeze them financially. There are many ways to squeeze them. There, for example, what if we say to airlines, if you serve Tehran, you can't land in the United States. That means you, Air France. That means you, Lufthansa. That means all of you. I mean, it's the same thing we did with banks, right? A real full pressure economic campaign. Uh, you, you could start with what Trump did and then you can build on it. I would then say the same thing that uh, you just said. We need to make it clear to them that the notion that they are immune from punishment if they simply use a proxy to kill Americans is wrong. It's over. You take American lives, you pay a price. And look, we're not talking about World War III here. We're not talking about 100,000 Marines landing in Tehran. There are many, many, many Iranian targets. Uh, Soleimani was one, if you talk about individuals, but there are also targets, you know, uh, al along the shore of the Persian Gulf. You wouldn't have to do this, I would argue, more than once or twice before the Iranians realized, okay, American policy has really changed. They're not crazy enough to think they're going to win a conflict with the United States. So it will change their behavior. All of this will change the resources available to them and their sense of impunity because uh, basically they get away with it. They keep getting away with it. They sure do. Um, we started out talking about Iran and uh, and in the intro we talk about, you know, we talk about actually what happened on the ground. But I do want to ask you one important question before we get, before we get back to Iran, which is... Elliot, you've had a security clearance. You worked in the State Department for uh, a lot of your career. You are intimately familiar with our intelligence community. Um, you, I think I, too, uh, have a lot of confidence in the Israeli intelligence community. They've got internal, external, military, the whole nine yards. They've got satellites, drones. My feeling about them, and I think their own feeling about themselves, was that they had woven an almost impenetrable net over the Palestinian terrorist groups, and that that, along with technical means and an incredibly effective border wall, <laughs> Mark's favorite two words, um, uh, have really gave them a sense of security. How, and we have an explicit rating, this deserves an explicit question, how did they fuck this up so badly? It's the question that, of course, Israelis are asking. And unquestionably, they will have a commission of inquiry uh, that will come up with more answers in roughly nine months. But 
I, I give you two answers. The first is this, everybody's using the word now, it's the right word, conception question. That is, why didn't we connect the dots on 9-11? Why didn't the Israelis see what was coming in 1973? They thought, well, look at 1967, we smashed the Arabs. Surely, it, I mean, it's impossible that just these few years later in 73, Arab states would attack. The notion that these, for us, that these primitive Taliban, primitive Al-Qaeda people would crash planes into the World Trade Center and destroy it, inconceivable. That is, I think, the place to start, that for the Israelis, they believed, so did I. I mean, this, this is not Bibi Netanyahu. This is the whole Israeli security structure and a lot of Americans. They had figured out a modus vivendi with Hamas. Hamas wanted murder, violence, and terror in the West Bank. And they were increasing it this year. But in Gaza, where they govern, they want calm. They want stability. They have to worry about, you know, getting kids to school and jobs and, and the economy. Uh, that was very, very, very widely believed. And it's clear now, I think, already that uh, a large part of that was deliberate on the part of Hamas. That is, it wasn't an accident that we came to this conclusion. They, they worked at it. And here again, I come back to Iran and its, its role in helping them do this. So that's first, the intellectual, if you will, or policy failure. And Yaakov Amidror, for example, former national security advisor, Israeli general, uh, wrote a couple of days ago, you know, I shared that. I realize now how terribly wrong, how tragically wrong I was. Widespread um, blame there. Then you get to the operational questions. Um, on Saturday, how many people were guarding the border with Gaza? It looks like a tiny, it's about a 40 mile border, a tiny number of IDF people. Um, did the Israelis never consider the fact that Hamas knows, just as you and I know, that they've got this very sophisticated technical network so they can pick up anything on a cell phone? Wouldn't, didn't occur to anybody, though, maybe they don't, maybe they use Messenger, maybe they don't use cell phones. Like Bin Laden. Yes, couriers. Exactly. So, I mean, we know this innovation. <laughs> why didn't, um, why didn't people do what we would call a red team? Why didn't they sit back and say, what if? It's interesting also that these tactics, and then I come, then I come back to Iran again. These tactics have been talked about by Hezbollah. Hezbollah has threatened, we're going to come across the border. We're going to go into Kibbutzim. We're going to kill people and capture other people. Hezbollah has said that in public. So we see here again, the network, Hezbollah, Hamas, both proxies of Iran. Um, why didn't the IDF respond more quickly? That's one I really have no answer to at all. Why was it not possible to get people to those border communities faster? I have heard Israelis who are in the political opposition to Bibi Netanyahu, who have been protesting in the past year say, it's this right-wing coalition, it's the right-wing members like Ben Vier and Smotrich who have no military experience, I think that's wrong and unfair because these deeper problems like trusting the border fence or not being able to get IDF people down there, this is not the product of a nine-month-old government. These are deeper problems that go back years. Now, Bibi's still prime minister, but the inquiry is going to have to look at the last three or four Mossad directors and the last three or four Shin Bet directors and the last three or four commanders of the IDF and particularly of the Southern uh, Front for the IDF, which has Gaza. And, and it should make us think. It's going to make the Israelis think about Hezbollah coming in from the north. It should make us think about our own misconceptions, whether it comes to an Iranian nuclear weapon or uh, it comes to Taiwan or it comes to other things the Russians or Chinese may do. Um, because we all have deep conceptions that we may or may not realize are not truths. They're just views of reality. 
Just another really quick follow-up. Another thing that I think certainly shocked the Israelis, but also really shocked me, you know, I, I've spent a, a professional lifetime following these guys. I met the founder of Hamas when I was a, a journalist, lo, these many years ago, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin in his wheelchair. I have never thought of Hamas as being like Hezbollah. I've always thought of it as being a smaller group, substantial political wing. The notion that they had more than a thousand fighters to deploy, I found quite shocking. That's another miss, but I just want to hear what you think. Well, you know, the population of Gaza is two million. So the notion, I think, that they could find a thousand guys and train them up in Gaza or or outside of Gaza, because I think there's probably some training in Lebanon under Hezbollah and or Iran. But the notion that, and it's more than a thousand, it's probably more like 2,500, um, I think is not, is not so shocking out of, out of that large a population. It, it, the sophistication is surprising. And I guess I'd also say the barbaric nature of the attack is shocking. Um, it's it's not something we saw, for example, from um, most of the past attacks, um, because most of Israel's you know wars have been with states, with armies. In the last big war, the '73 war, it was army against army. This is reminiscent of ISIS. This is really astonishing barbarity, which I think helps explain why we saw in the news already that Israel has hit several mosques. Now, why is that? It's well known that Hamas is using those mosques and schools as headquarters, as warehouses, as depots, as arms, storage, warehouses. And Israel in previous rounds has not hit them. It's hitting them this time because it has understood now that this has to be no holds barred because they're dealing with, and I know people hate this word and I'll be criticized for it, savages. It's it's the right word. So so walk us through the response. I mean, the conclusion that we've heard is that Israel now understands they can no longer live with Hamas in existence, that Hamas has to be destroyed. How does that happen? What are we well, going to see? First of all, it can't just be from the air. I mean, that's clear. I think Israel's going to do a couple of things. First, I think probably this has been talked about in the Israeli press. I think they will try to establish a buffer zone on the Gaza side of the border, a no man's land. Um, there hasn't been one, but say, I don't know, choose a number. I've heard uh, thousand uh, feet, quarter of a mile, half a mile, where they will now destroy everything that's there. And by the way, Egypt did this. Egypt at one point said, we want a buffer zone. And people said, well, you can't do that because, you know, there are Gazans who live along the border. There are, there are apartment houses and all. And the Egyptians simply bulldozed everything. I mean, they told people to get out and then they bulldozed it. That's what the Israelis have to do. And they have to say this area, quarter mile, whatever it is, is a no man's land. And anyone who enters it will be killed. They are going to have to go into the denser parts, at least in raids, in order to try to get at all the depots, warehouses, tunnels, arms storage, laboratories, headquarters, offices, and destroy them. Much of that can be done from the air. Um, it raises a very interesting question that I would raise now, which is suppose success. Suppose they actually can do that. Who governs Gaza? Because the Israelis are not going to do that. They do not want to have, you know, 100,000 troops in Gaza permanently. In 2005, when they pulled out, the answer was obvious. It was the Palestinian Authority. And it wasn't a crazy answer because, remember, Arafat was dead a year. Uh, the PA at that point, um, they had had an election in 2005. Uh, President Abbas had won, and he had won handily a four-year term that he's still in. Um, but the notion that the PA could govern was not crazy, and they did for two years. And then in 2007, Hamas kicked them out. It is a reminder, by the way, how do they treat other Palestinians? Remember, they were throwing Fatah leaders off the roofs of buildings in Gaza in 2007. So maybe that 
should have given us a clue as to how they'd behave. Anyway, this is a difficult problem. One way of looking at it is there's a lot of poll data suggesting that Gazans, many Gazans are tired of Hamas. Who wouldn't be tired of living under these brutal, savage conditions? And the Israelis, in a certain way, are going to liberate Gazans from Hamas. And the PA, unfortunately, is in no real position to govern anything. It can barely govern the West Bank. But I think this is a real problem that no doubt Israelis are thinking about. I do think that, then, again, you, you can't say these things, I know. But the next time I hear somebody say, the answer is the two-state solution, without answering the question, who is going to prevent that state or the West Bank from not coming under the control of terrorist groups? Uh, you know, that person just should be laughed at, whether, frankly, whether it's a European prime minister or, or it's the Pope, because uh, it's absurd. It's absurd. I was cheered that this week's statement put out by European leaders and President Biden, which said we still hope for peace in the Middle East, did not call for the two-state solution, which is probably the first statement the Europeans have issued on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that hasn't in you know 50 years. But I think Israel can destroy Hamas as we know it. The infrastructure, they're going to have to kill a lot of Hamas soldiers and, and leaders, and they will. I think they'll have to go after some of the leaders who are overseas, who are living with immunity in you know Doha, uh, Turkey. Um, if they can kill, frankly, if they can kill Iranians in Iran, they can kill those guys, and that'll be a task for the Mossad. But then the question of what happens in Gaza after the Israelis pull out, I think, is a is an interesting and important one. There's the further question of what happens to the PA, to the West Bank. So, you know, a big part of, you know, you saw the piece I wrote that came out on Sunday that laid out the very clearly articulated Iranian plan for what to happen, right, which is which involves not simply Gaza, but also the West Bank. And the Israelis rightly saw that Hamas has been moving its operations to the West Bank. It's been doing its best to undermine the PA. The PA, of course, doesn't need any help with undermining, but because it does it so well itself. We've seen the same thing going on in Lebanon, where traditional strongholds of the PLO, Fatah, those guys who now run the Palestinian Authority, are being killed um, in southern Lebanon. Again, all of this is of a piece. But then what happens to the West Bank? What happens to the Palestinians? I mean, this is, you know, even if you are, even if you're not a humanitarian, even if you think no two-state solution, this is Israel's border and they can't just manage Gaza. What are they going to do? You know, um, first of all, we're assuming here that Israel is going to do enormous, enormous damage to Hamas. I think that's right, which will give, uh, you know, a sort of, period in the West Bank for the PA to regenerate. Now, you got an 88-year-old leader, and regeneration is very hard. But I, I want to bring you back to the George W. Bush years, after 9-11. If you could only bring us back to the George yeah. W. Bush years. What did Bush do after 9-11? He said he saw, okay, Arafat's a terrorist. We don't hate Palestinians, but Arafat's a terrorist. So what Bush did was to say... There can't be a Palestinian state if it's going to be a terrorist state. Palestinians need new leadership, his phrase, new leadership, not compromised by terror and corruption. And what did we do? We pressured and pressured them to make Salam Fayyad first finance minister and then prime minister. And they actually had decent government for several years until Abbas kicked Fayyad out. Um, that's a project. That's a project that we could try, we the United States could try to do with Arab help, with the help of the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Jordanians, uh, a project to try to bring some kind of decent government to the West Bank. Hard? Yes. Impossible? Inconceivable? There are no honest people? No, it's not inconceivable. But uh, it was given up after 2005 or six, And it's something that people want to think about because um, Abbas, again, he's 88, he's going to go 
in the next few years, um, what will follow him? What are we doing about it? I think the answer is nothing. Elliot, I saw that Mustafa Banghuti and others have actually been defending Hamas. So yeah. what does that mean? Well, Mustafa Barghouti was never, I would say, the hope of anyone. He was, you know, a minor, minor party politician. You know, this takes a huge, huge policy and intellectual change. We've been picking really bad leaders, we, the United States, and our allies, for the Palestinians for 100 years. In 1921, the British chose Hajramin al-Husseini, a Nazi, to be the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. The Israelis chose Yasser Arafat. This is the 30th anniversary of Oslo. What was Oslo? Oslo was a deal between Israel and the PLO that allowed Arafat to come back from exile and bring 30,000 guys with him. They handed the West Bank and Gaza to Yasser Arafat. They and we have never really tried, except for a couple of years under Bush, an experiment with choosing decent Palestinian, supporting decent Palestinian leadership. And we ought to try it. There are people in their system. There are school principals. There are mayors. There are NGO leaders who are not part of this vicious, bloody, corrupt political system. I, I, there are no miracles here. I'm not suggesting, well, sure, we flip a switch. This is going to be easy. But there's complicity here on the part, frankly, of everyone in the West and Israel who's been supporting these corrupt leaders for a century. Well, I'm going to leave it to you and Danny to fix the Palestinians. I want to get back to deterrence. So, <laughs> so uh, after the Soleimani strike, not only did Iran not retaliate, we had the unprecedented phenomenon of not one, not two, not three, multiple Abraham Accords, where first Arab-Israeli peace accords in a quarter century uh, struck. Why was that possible in the wake of the Soleimani strike? And we were looking now at possibly another one between Israel and Saudi Arabia. In fact, Netanyahu, a week before this, said that, that peace has never been closer. <laughs> and then, and now we're in the middle of a war. What lesson should we take from that? The Arabs want a strong ally. They hope it's the United States because they all fear Iran. And they see what Iran does in their neighborhood, in Yemen, in Iraq, um, in Lebanon. Um, for a while, they thought it was us. And then for a while, they thought it was Israel. And I think the Abraham Accords are based on their understanding of Israel as a reliable ally against Iran, the only reliable ally against Iran. Now, they'll be asking themselves this week whether Israel is weaker than they thought. And one has to hope that a month or two from now, that will be re resolved. Getting back to your question, the, the Arabs see a strong Israel and want it as an ally. And that is why it is the antidote to the Obama theory that everybody has to share the neighborhood with Iran. They heard that, they got scared, and they began to think about Israel as an ally. Let's talk about opposing costs on, on Iran. During the Bush administration and even under the Obama administration, the most dangerous job in the world was operational commander of Al-Qaeda. <laughs> we knocked off so many of them. Everybody, KSM was, was captured and then every one of his successors was knocked off successively because they were the ones sticking their heads above the parapet. Should we make the job of Quds Force commander the most dangerous job in the world? They, in other words, that if Iran is responsible for killing an American citizen, every time you take out an American, uh, Quds Force commander meets his maker. Is that a realistic policy option? Uh, I don't see why not. I mean, the, the, here's the problem. Israel has the capacity to do that. We have a more limited capacity inside Iran. Um, and we didn't kill Soleimani inside Iran. Mm -hmm. But I think the principle here uh, that you're suggesting is they need to pay a very substantial price. And there, you know, one way to do it is by hitting a military target, uh, a physical target. Another way to do it is going after the leadership. But the principle has to be no more immunity. Uh, exit question from me, Elliot, and we've kept you longer than I promised. Uh, we always do. <laughs> it's, it's always a lie. Um, <laughs> I should be more honest. 
But we'll only um, have you for twenty minutes. <laughs> Just twenty. Um, you're lying. You're lying. But I know you're lying. You know. I know. I know. You know. So oh no! You know. I know. You know. You know. Um, you mentioned you mentioned the potential second front. Um, I think there are debates going on right now. We're seeing them. I'm hearing from friends in Beirut that there's a lot of backing and forthing about you know about whether or not to do this. Ultimately, if the Iranians tell Hezbollah to do it, they will. There's a lot of fretting in Washington right now about how Iran is seeking a wider war. Right, that Iran believes the United States won't step in. They've made that very clear. And I think that's agreed in our community as well, that Iran believes the United States is weak, that the United States will not step in to support Israel. On the other hand, the president, the letter that the president sent with the Europeans that didn't mention the two-state solution, it explicitly warned against this. Clearly, they are thinking that the Iranians may be contemplating this. What are your odds? And do you think that Iran is served by a wider war. I actually don't, uh, but I'm curious to know what you think. My estimate right now um, is that Iran won't do it because it doesn't want Hezbollah eliminated. I can make the alternative argument that it thinks that at the end of that two-front war, Israel would have faced so much damage and destruction that it will be much weaker and won't be able to attack even the Iranian uh, nuclear program. I think they won't do it, but I think that the president and and Blinken Sullivan should be thinking, what do we do if it is a two-front war? I do not think that Israel will be uh, asking for American troops. They never have. But the demands, as in the 73 war, the demands in terms of resupply uh, will be much, much greater. Uh, and uh, I think we should be planning right now how we would meet them. And the president moved that carrier task force closer to Israel in the Eastern Mediterranean. It's a nice reminder of American power, but what does he plan to do with it? I, I don't know. And I am reasonably confident he doesn't know. I have two quick exit questions. Uh, number one, we have, in the last three years, seen 280 arrests of people on the terrorist watch list at our southern border. There are 1.5 million Godaways uh, who have slipped in. Uh, and this is in a time when you know, when people know that if they just turn themselves into Customs and Border Patrol, they get to stay in America. So if 1.5 million people are Godaways, they're Godaways for a reason. How much danger are we in here at home? I think there are clearly Hezbollah agents in this country. Uh, when I worked at the NSC, which is, you know, 15 years ago, we used to say Hezbollah is the A-team, not Al-Qaeda. Um, Hezbollah is much larger. It has much more direct state support from Iran than Al-Qaeda ever did. They know the border is essentially open. So the notion that they would not have put agents into the U.S. Uh, defies logic. And if, um, if they turn them on, yeah, they could do real damage. I'm, I'm sure they're here. And final actual exit question. So broaden out. Iran has just started a war in the Middle East. Russia has just started a war in Europe. China is threatening a war in the Pacific. Is this 1930? Are we on the cusp of a third world war? And how do we deter that? It's the 20s and 30s in the sense that there is a feeling in the world of American weakness and withdrawal. And that means that the evil forces in the world, and evil is the right word, um, feel emboldened. I don't think we're on the cusp of another great world war, but I do think that we are going to see what we saw in the 30s when Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini uh, felt unrestricted. They could just go across borders and conquer whatever they wanted to conquer. So what do we do about it? Um, we strengthen ourselves and our allies and our alliances. And we're doing some of that in Asia with, you know, a variety of, of allies there. But we're not attending to two key parts of it. One of them is defending the homeland. The homeland is not defended if the southern border is open and it needs to be closed. And we need to spend a lot more money on defense. 
That's just a simple fact. We need to spend a lot more money on defense. You can talk about the Chinese Navy. You can talk about the, um, the size of the forces arrayed against us. You can talk about the percentage of GDP we're spending on defense as opposed to uh, the Cold War. Uh, but when you look at the threats we face and our allies face, we need a stronger America. And that means a larger military establishment. Amen. Amen to that. There's too much. Uh, we're at, there's too much at a moment when we treat our role in the world like a, a joke in a circus. I don't want us to be made, made to grow up. I want us to find the, the tools and fucking get serious ourselves. Tell that uh, to Matt Gates and Charles Lindbergh caucus. <laughs> good name for them. <laughs> Thank you, Elliot, as always. Look forward to seeing you when we're back. Thank you. It's fun, though it's also grim. Amen. So, Mark, World War III, you asked about it. Yeah. I mean, look, if you look at what's happening right now, we've got war in Europe, we've got war in the Middle East, China is threatening uh, Taiwan. This thing could spin out of control if we don't uh, start doing certain things differently. We've done podcast after podcast about our defense industrial base, which I know sounds really boring and technical, but the reality is we literally can't produce the weapons we need because we have been taking a peace dividend for decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union and not even under Republican presidents, Democratic presidents, worse under Democrats, better under Republicans, but still not enough. Something I found out recently that is stunning, you know, we haven't produced until the Ukraine war, we hadn't produced a single Stinger missile since 2005. 2005, the last time we produced crazy. them, we had stockpiles of them. So we, until the Ukraine war, we didn't have warm production lines. For these weapons. Nope. And so we when would we start up our production lines? When we got into a hot war with China. Well, okay, now we're getting our production lines going up. Now we're going to need to start taking this stuff seriously. And I've, I've got to tell you, war in Europe, war in the Middle East, potential for war in Asia... I am sick and tired of the Know Nothing Caucus in Congress and and this this neo isolationist movement that is tying our hands and and you know causing chaos in and Capitol Hill. We don't have time for this crap. We don't have time to play footsie with these people. It's time for Republicans on Capitol Hill to step up, push back on these morons, increase our defense spending, stand with our allies, arm our allies push back on the tyrants, and prevent World War III. This is not a foregone conclusion. The 1930s didn't necessarily have to turn in to the 1940s. It was an avoidable fate, and we need to learn our lessons. The goal is to, to stop World War III from happening, but you can't do that when you don't produce a single Stinger missile for, you know, almost two decades. I mean, so, you know, we, we were talking about Iran before this, and I think people really need to understand the proximity. Do you guys realize that we brought hostages home from Iran three weeks ago and the Biden administration transferred $6 billion to them? How do our enemies take us seriously when this happens? How, how is that even possible? You, you want to talk about the need for deterrence, and I totally agree with you, the need to rebuild our defense industrial base. You know, what did Mackenzie say last week? The cheapest wars are the wars you don't fight, right? Amen. No question about that. But if we can't even stand up to Iran taking American hostages and have to pay them six billion dollars and then lie about whether or not it's subsidizing their regime. You know, of course, nobody takes us seriously. It's not that we don't have stinger missiles. It's that we don't have serious leaders. Look at the array of our presidential candidates. There is Nikki Haley saying, do Ukraine, support Israel. There's Robert F. Kennedy saying, because now he's running to saying, ooh, you know, everybody has a conspiracy to vax us and we should be supporting nobody. And there's Joe Biden. I want a sign of life for him. But the reality is we don't have anybody who's prepared to stand up to China and to Russia and to Iran, who's actually in the halls of power today. It's incredible. We know how this story ends if, it does, if things don't change, uh, because... My mom was in Poland when the bomb started dropping in 1939. 
Uh, and, and it didn't. Uh, it didn't end well. Yes. It didn't end well. It ended in millions dead and an attack F- on the United 50 States. Fifty million. And an attack on the United States. And oh, by the way, we got to get our freaking border secure. For crying out loud, the idea that no. we that we just let anyone who uh, one point five million gotaways coming into this country, forgetting the people who's turned themselves in, one point five million people just crossed our border and walked in. Terrorists. Yeah. Now, now I want to. I want to say something. I want to say something to to our listeners because I think a lot of people think when you say that it's a complete non sequitur. And I'm going to link in our Substack to a great piece you wrote about this in the Washington Post. The bottom line is a country that can, a friend of mine who worked for George Soros said this to me. Borders define a country, a country that can't defend its borders, can't defend its interests. And that is absolutely true. You know, we love, we both love immigrants. We both love immigration. This is not immigration. This is insanity. It's insanity. Yeah. Anyway. We will be back next week, but thank you. Thank you all for your notes. Thank you all for reaching out. I've heard from a ton of people in the last week, both our listeners and our Substack followers. I've been trying to write a lot, and I know you are too. So thank you, everybody, for for your support. We will see you next week. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.